On this episode of AvTalk, aviation journalist John Walton joins us from the Paris Air Show to discuss Airbus's launch of the A321XLR and the importance of IAG's order for 200 737 MAX aircraft. We also discuss a recent GPS issue that grounded some flights. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined with Jason Rabinowitz, and we are joined by special guest aviation journalist John Walton from Paris at the Paris Air Show. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a delight to be back. Hey, John, welcome back. How's it going out in Paris this year? Really interestingly, obviously this year's main topic has been the situation with Boeing and the 737 MAX, but also the Airbus A321XLR, the re-tanked, uh, re-engined, re-ranged version of Airbus's uh, stretched narrow body. So yeah, really interesting show this year. So what is d- the difference between the A321LR and the XLR? If you had one sentence to describe it, give me the elevator pitch. Okay, this is the one that they should have done before. It is basically, in addition to having the auxiliary center tanks in what is the cargo bay. They have put a rear center tank outside the cargo bay structure. They've also upgraded the landing gear to make it heavier as a, in terms of maximum takeoff weight, which gives it more fuel range, changed around some of the flaps. But the basic aircraft really still is the A321neo just with longer legs. So this is the 321neo LR but for real this time. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you want the full 4,700 nautical mile range, that's up for from 4,000 nautical miles on the plain LR, you have to fill both the rear centre tank, which is the new thing they've built, and the auxiliary centre tanks, which is what made up the LR. Very nice. And there was definitely a lot of interest in this so far. I think that the biggest order so far was American with uh, an order for 50 of them starting delivery with eight in 2023. Who are the other big buyers of it? Anyone who's anyone has been buying this aircraft this week, whether that means Indigo for their uh, stable of airlines, whether that's IAG for Aer Lingus and for Iberia. It's, it's been selling like hotcakes. Airbus is going to be very pleased. And, you know, what? one of the things this also means for Airbus is that while a lot of these have been conversions from existing orders, quite a few have been incremental new orders. And also every time that Airbus sells a more capable aircraft, it sells a more expensive aircraft. And given that the marginal cost to them of selling a more expensive aircraft is essentially zero, because they've got they've got to fill the slots on the production line, and whether that's with a, a, a small aircraft like an A319 or the larger aircraft like the A321 or the larger aircraft with more legs like the 321XLR, it, you're, you're building in the same space, you're, you're taking the same amount of time to build, basically, but you're selling a more expensive product, which works for you if you're an airline, or indeed for, yeah, if you're it, an airframer. It's exciting. Airlines from Middle East Airlines to Qantas to American, I think Cebu Pacific and Saudi are in there. So it really did have global reach, which is pretty impressive for launch day. It was a little bit like the Oprah show where she's giving away a car to everybody. But of course, they're paying for them. So I know we have a bit of differing opinions on narrow body flights over a long haul. What is your take on what the, I don't want to say experience, but the 
the ride is on a narrow body up to seven, possibly eight plus hours that they're they're targeting these fights for. Right. Well, look, hey, Jason, I'm I'm delighted to to once again have the opportunity to tell you just how wrong you are about this. Oh, I'm never wrong. <laughs> Come on. I've missed that since you were that time, never wrong. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. So look, this thing has a longer range than the original Boeing 747-100 when that debuted. You know. 50 years Which is ago. a remarkable statistic. That's amazing. Now, people got very mad about that in my mentions when I when I did those calculations. I am not saying that one of these aircraft is better than the other. I am just remarking on how impressive it is that was was supposed to be a little, you know, short-range hopper has turned into this incredibly long and incredibly thin stalwart of future passenger experience. And that is indeed being ordered by any number of airlines, you know, Cebu Pacific, who want to squeeze literally as many seats on there as possible, all the way to an airline like Pontus or British Airways, uh, IAG for Aer Lingus and Iberia. You know, these are airlines that are going to be putting real business class seats up front, uh, potentially a real premium economy in the middle, and then an economy with what looks to be, in, in many cases, proper long-haul seating down the back. Which is exactly what Americans said, that their uh, CEO outright said, we're going to have direct aisle access and premium economy and economy on a 321, which sounds pretty impressive. Right. And, you know, that's direct aisle access is something they already do on their A321Ts, of course, and have done for quite some time now, uh, flying transcons within the States. I I find this really interesting because you have to first of all look at this in terms of the overall passenger experience that people are going to be offered with these new non-stop services. So if you are flying, I don't know, Berlin to Boston, right? No non-stop flights right now. So you have to connect on probably some terrible regional jet through one of the big hubs on either side of the either side of the Atlantic. You won't have power, most likely. You may have Wi-Fi. You've certainly got a connection to deal with. And that's before you've even taken your, your long-haul flight, or indeed after you've taken your long-haul flight, which is even more depressing. Being able to fly non-stop, especially from smaller airports, which are generally easier to get to, cheaper to park at, closer to home for a start, and, and nicer to, to, to be processed in, I think that's inherently a good experience for people, right? I think there's, there's, there's a basic rule that point-to-point flying is better passenger experience than having to connect. Would you agree? I definitely do agree with that. I think that point-to-point flying nonstop is always preferred over having to switch uh, um, flights at, at, let's say, JFK, which often me- which well, always means if you're coming internationally, you have to clear customs, immigration, security, probably change terminals again. It, it's it's a hassle and it takes hours, introduces chances for delays. But does that outweigh the negatives of flying a narrow-body long haul? Well, see, I've done quite a bit of narrow-body long-haul flying, and I honestly don't see that many negatives, particularly given the cabin upgrades that will be in place for these A321 XLR versions of the Neo family. So by the time this is all delivered, we'll have the airspace cabin, right, which is the new one with the really big bins, so there's going to be no faffing about with, with, with overhead luggage. I mean, there will still be faffing about with overhead luggage, do not get me wrong, but there'll be substantially less than there is on a long-haul narrowbody today. I've flown long-haul on Fly Dubai, I've flown long-haul on 757s across the Atlantic. There are some uh, complications as a general rule, there's usually a queue for the lavatories at certain points in the flight. Airlines will need to be really thoughtful about how they do that lavatory provision. Particularly for passengers with reduced mobility, there is astoundingly no requirement on either side of the Atlantic 
for airlines to put a lavatory that is accessible for people with mobility requirements in narrow-body aircraft. There is for wide bodies, but not for narrow bodies. Now, with this thing flying 10 hours, for a start, that regulation has to change. But also the industry has to take take the lead and say it is just inhumane to, to not provide uh, accessible lavatories for, for passengers. But Airbus has, has options for that, both in terms of the uh, SpaceFlex, which is the convertible lavatory at the back, which turns two small labs into one larger lab for passengers with reduced mobility. And indeed, they have a mid-cabin lavatory that they're going to be starting to uh, pitch to passengers at this point. Right. So you've definitely touched upon a couple of the points, which I think are huge negatives. Uh, really, I always come back to the labs. On the 321, you have that one up by the, the flight deck in front. You have the tiny, narrow mid-cabin lab on the 321s. And then you'll have probably two, maybe three of the SpaceFlex labs in the back. It's I envision at the end of a long-haul red-eye flight, there was going to be a long line of passengers down the aisle, maybe five, six rows of people waiting, queuing up to use those few labs. And it's just, I don't envision a great experience for most passengers in the back of that aircraft. Whilst today on a wide body, there's plenty of room usually to congregate around the lavatories, either in a galley or somewhere around that, where you don't get in the way of passengers who are sitting in their seats. That's where I think is going to be one of the major problems, along with the galley space on these aircraft. We've seen flight attendants with airlines, specifically JetBlue, with the SpaceFlex uh, galleys in the back. They've had to do some modifications because the crew hates them. The passengers don't like them. Nobody likes them, but that's the way it is. So we're really talking about very small spaces flight attendants and crews will have to prepare multiple meals since these are going to be eight, 10 hour flights. I just don't know how they're going to be able to efficiently work in the, in these small spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to realize that for quite a lot of these aircraft, certainly ones that are flying very long routes, these are going to be quite low density aircraft, right? Certainly if American Airlines is talking about putting angled, well, um, uh, direct access, which we assume is going to be some sort of angled situation right up front, that will probably stretch quite a ways back. Then there'll be premium economy. Then I would put some reasonable money on the probably being some main cabin extra, extra legroom seats. So that shouldn't be as much of a problem as it would be, for example, on the Cebu Pacific version of this, which will have the maximum passengers capacity, right? Which we all call max packs but within the yeah, industry. Cebu Pacific, I think that the experience on that is a lost cause. You're just happy to be on the plane. Well, indeed. And as a bit of an aside, despite being a, a real booster of better passenger experience, there is a role for low-cost carriers and indeed long-haul low-cost carriers like Cebu Pacific. Right. Given the huge Filipino diaspora who uh, are working in what are largely very low paid service industry jobs across Asia in particular, this is going to let people get home to visit their families. It's going to let their families come to visit them where they're working. You know, and for the price, this airline knows what it offers, is clear about what it offers, and that's what you get. You know, it's not a, a legacy full service carrier saying, promising you the moon and then giving you a piece of you know, moldy Swiss cheese. That's what I'm okay with. Now, I think that the your point about congregating in the aisle is, is certainly a reasonable one. That that could indeed be an issue. I think that a lot of airlines have learned from the uh, galley layout. Certainly JetBlue has been encountering some issues with. I think we're likely to see some smart stowage of all this stuff. You and I, I know, have seen the overhead storage bins 
that can be put above the aisle in that sort of head, unused headspace. That could allow for some for additional storage. I also think that airlines might be smart about how they start to provision things. You will probably end up with either a, a specific catering offering here or airlines evolving the whole catering option. So, for example, if you look at what Qantas did a few years back about rather than having 14 little pots of things to open, you have one big main meal, right, which takes up a lot less room in terms of catering stowage. I also just, I feel that you might be slightly overstating the, the level of catering that is provided on a lot of these aircraft. You know, if you're doing a, a transatlantic red eye, I'm not sure that the, the, the problem is going to be serving you the, the bagged weaponized croissant and a, a little tin of cold orange juice, right? That's not going to be the, the pressure point. There will be a pressure point up front in the business class area. If, when you enter a Fly Dubai 737 MAX, there's a lot of extra storage, which is a little inelegant. So they will need to figure out how to make that look a little bit less like you're dodging around bits of cabin monument to try and get into the aircraft. But again, these are the trade-offs, right? I feel like everything in this industry is at some point a trade-off. And if it saves you four, five hours going across the Atlantic or, you know, shuttling upwards and downwards from Australia to China, I mean, these are reasonable amounts of, of travel time saving for, you know, a bit of inconvenience in the last 45, 50 minutes of flight. I think passengers will take that. Yeah, I don't disagree. And, and I'm coming at this with uh, an American point of view, literally American airlines, <laughs> that these will pretty much for the most part be one-to-one, -one, I think, replacing the 757s at first, and then they'll start expanding routes. So a lot of the routes that these are going to end up on are already served by narrow bodies. So I think they have a lot of experience and they'll figure it out. And at the end of the day, the experience, I think the positives will outweigh the negatives and hopefully they can engineer around some of the negatives. But there's one thing in particular that they'll never probably get out of the 321 XLR is L2 door boarding, which no one really has figured out, which is kind of unfortunate. Well, for a start, there's no L2 door anymore, right? Nope, it's gone. So problem solved. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> now we're getting deep into the wilds of passenger experience stuff. Okay. When you think of an A221 right now, you think of a thing with four relatively normal sized doors, two in front of the wing, two behind the wing. What happens to get you to the A321 LR and now the XLR is something called Airbus Cabin Flex, which takes door two ahead of the wing, which, as you say, is entirely useless, which means, well, what that means is, oh no, business class doesn't get to turn left on boarding. You know, very sad. So sorry. Do, do cry into your pre-boarding champagne. Instead, those are moved over the wing as uh, two overwing exits at manufacturing. But depending on how many seats are in that section can turn into, well, you essentially have a, a permanent plug for either one or it seems potentially both of those aircraft. Uh, I'm sorry, of those, of those aircraft doors. We saw the La Compagnie A321 Neo, not indeed an LR or an XLR, uh, that they're shuttling backs and forwards between Paris and New York. That had one plugged with the uh, slightly denser business class, I think, than Americans looking at. That was a 2-2 Collins Aerospace Diamond. They had to have the overwing, uh, one overwing exit. All that really means is that the 
seat that is in that row has a little bit extra bed length. So should you be flying La Compagnie, do look for the exit row because that makes your bed a little bit longer. But apart from that, it's a really smart way that Airbus has lightened the load of the 321neo and also enabled basically some safe space uh, some space saving around these less dense more premium types of, of of aircraft configuration right okay so that's enough about airbus um surely boeing was there atr embraer mitsubishi what else happened at the show that took you got got you interested got you looking yeah, well, I mean, the big news on, on Tuesday was that IAG had purchased the aircraft formerly known as the 737 MAX. This was a very interesting, and uh, to save people from a lot of inside baseball here, Boeing announced that it had sold 200 737 MAX 8 and MAX 10 aircraft, notably not MAX 9, to IAG for the use of uh, of its... Boeing mentioned, uh, I believe, low-cost carrier of Welling and indeed new low-cost carrier level. And I can't remember if, if it was Boeing's or IAG's statement that me- mentioned the British Airways Gatwick fleet, which is sort of... Right, the sort of- IAG had mentioned BA out of Gatwick, but Boeing did not. Right. The other thing IAG didn't mention was the word MAX anywhere. Now, look, obviously, this is a, a large vote of confidence by, by IAG in the aircraft that that shall not be named. But I also think there's something about you can't really have confidence in an aircraft if you're not willing to name it. <laughs> you know, that was very interesting. And I think everyone assumes they got a substantial discount here, right? Yeah. Let's remember that aircraft are always discounted off the list price, but this discount must have been astronomical. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they didn't literally give them away. But imagine how much of a reputation hit Boeing has taken from what it's done with the Max. And, and, and then look at the the benefit of having a large European airline group say, we still have confidence in Boeing and in this aircraft. That's huge. Yeah, now, that, that order was absolutely a pivotal moment for Boeing, I think. It, it, it doesn't exactly scream to me confidence in the aircraft. It, it almost screams, we got a really good deal on this aircraft that we know is going to fly again. That's not in question. But then to not name the MAX in any of the releases is kind of, doesn't scream confidence, but it, it, it screams something. I'm not sure what. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an angle that that, that says it screams desperation on Boeing's part, right? If this hadn't happened, I mean, Boeing would have been left with some converted 737-800 freighters, five 777-Fs to Qatar Airways, and my favourite announcement today, one 777-200LR to Turkmenistan Airlines. I think a lot of people underestimate Turkmenistan Airlines, but you can't. I mean, when you come to a show in Paris and you buy one triple seven two hundred LR, you mean business. People turn head. You know, it's we mock, but um, this is the situation in which Boeing finds itself, um, and it's a situation of Boeing's own making. And I think it's important to remember to how the company got here. It's a real problem for the aviation industry because we are in a duopoly situation here. Which brings us rather neatly to Embraer, which uh, Embraer Commercial Aviation is still Embraer Commercial Aviation. It is not yet Boeing Brazil Commercial, 
that that deal is still going through but in the meantime they're selling his Embraer the standards Embraer it's still all of our our folks from Embraer doing some selling and indeed uh, after a couple of trickling in orders from existing customers conversions of options you know the sort of here's some free steak knives situation Embraer won really important order from them for them for 35 E195 E2 so the E2 is the re-engined next generation E-Jet, the E195 is the one that's been stretched. So it's, it's really good for them, and that's from KLM for its city hopper operation. KLM will either use that for expansion or to replace existing aircraft, depending on what the slot situation is at Schiphol, the, the airport in Amsterdam, where they're, where they're headquartered. John, having spent the weekend in Paris at the show and, and having talked with people from from all over the world who who come to who are basically the the entire compendium of inside baseball, you know the folks who really know what they're talking about, who don't blink at spending a hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars, you know, five billion dollars. What was the mood of the show this year? What were things like with those people who who have a not necessarily you know an industry stake in seeing kind of things move forward, but but also kind of a, a, a very real financial stake? Yeah, I mean it was really interesting. the The mood was a lot less celebratory overall. Obviously, the mood at Boeing was very somber. There was the the mayor culpa tour that started off the show, not helped by the announcement from General Electric that. The re-engine 777-9X will be delayed for a matter of some months because they need to redesign part of the engine. The world's media was there, if if a little sparsely, interestingly, for the for the first Boeing press conference, and there was not the usual. There was a, a, I noticed that a lot of the pr- a lot of the orders were announced via press release without a the usual flashes and clicks of a signing ceremony, which you know, given that that. That has not been the case in past years, right? Everybody and their dog turns up with the CEO to to sign for, you know, for, for everything from, from two to five planes up to 200 to 500 planes, right? It was very interesting uh, to, to see that there was not the same sort of atmosphere this year. And I think that's largely down to the MAX situation, right? And certainly with, with you know, half of the global airline duopoly essentially in cold stasis at this point while they look to get the max back in the sky. I think that was that was pretty much expected. What wasn't expected at this show? Well, the the order for the, such a large order for the max. And I think the range of the A321XLR uh, was also a surprise for people. I think folks thought, yeah, they'll stick a few hundred extra nautical miles out of it, which, you know, that'll make a few more cities in Europe reachable from a few more cities in the States. But 4,700 nautical miles at the speed that the A321 flies, which is a little bit slower than your average wide body, that's a 10-hour flight. That's, you know, London to Beijing. That's proper long haul at this point. And that's going to be a huge cha- game changer for, for the entire industry. There's very little that's, that's sexy to look at, right, apart from the... <laughs> <laughs> the, the now famous Airbus uh, raccoon sunglasses on the front of the American Airlines A321XLRs, right? I am not sure. I'm not sure that I like the, the raccoon look, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to entertain alternate viewpoints on that. But there's nothing much sexy about the A321XLR, right? The interesting thing is going to be around what's inside. 
uh, and what the passenger experience is. And I think that's, you know, I think the, at the risk of actually agreeing with you, Jason, I mean, heaven for oh, fair. What? Right? This is absolutely going to be a huge challenge for every airline. The LCCs will need to make sure they're very clear about what they're offering. Um, the premium airlines will need to make sure that they take real care in outfitting these aircraft. And the airlines in the middle need to be incredibly good and, and much better than any of them are about being clear about what passengers can expect on board, whether that's from connectivity to entertainment to power to seats to catering. You're not going to be able to just say, oh, yeah, this is the normal experience for so-and-so airlines, right? This is going to have to be different. And I think, actually, it will help the airlines to say this is different, right? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we see sub-branding in some ways, Right. You know, kind of like what JetBlue does with Mint or an extension almost of what British Airways does with, the, with its Club World London City. Right. This is these are going to be special flights. And the airlines are want, going to want people to know that, that they've invested in new planes that help you get from A to B without having to go via C. And, you know, I think that's that's good news for the airlines. Uh, it's certainly good news for passengers overall, I think. And, and yeah, it's it's going to be the new normal. I mean, this thing has got hundreds and hundreds of sales at this point um, in the first three days that it's been offered. I don't see that that, that changing. It's already a rip-roaring success. And, and hey, huge kudos to Airbus for realising they have a success on their hands, uh, for doing the engineering required to to turn this, <laughs> what was supposed to be just a little, a little, you know, intercontinent hopper into a, a real wide-body aircraft. From a technical point of view, I think it's absolutely amazing. Well, on that surprisingly civil note with no curse words hurled at either of us, I, th I think we should call it. John Walton joining us from the Paris Air Show. Thank you so very much for your insights. We'll, we'll let you get back to the show and, and maybe a little bit of sleep. I know it's late where you are. John, tell everyone listening where we can read more from you from the show. Well, start off on Twitter. I'm that John on Twitter. Uh, you can find my work at runwaygirlnetwork.com. And uh, yeah, do get in touch. I love talking to people about aviation and the passenger experience, even if they're as wrong as Jason is. John, thanks again so much for joining us, and we will be back after a short break. Welcome back, and I think we should continue our conversation of Paris a little bit with some reporting that's come out today surrounding what we call the latest iteration of the 737. Um, we began the day with Qatar Airways chief Akbar Al-Baker saying that they should rename it, uh, they should rebrand it and, and call it something else. And there's a, some reporting from John Ostrow today as well saying that the MAX name is, is, is all but gone, but it will take some time before Boeing kind of drops that away. And the, and the IAG announcement was kind of the, the first step in that process. Do you think that that Boeing should rename the Max, or yes. do you think at this point it doesn't matter? It, it, no, they they absolutely have to. The the Max name is so ingrained in the public as something to avoid at this point. I don't think they have any choice. I mean, it was to the point where Southwest had previously used common safety cards for both the NG and the Max. And it said right on it, 737-800 and 737-MAX-8. And people were seeing these on board and kind of panicking, saying, am I on the MAX? And 
I don't think we've really ever seen aircraft names having such, um, I don't know, public animosity towards them, like 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 this. Possibly the MD eleven back in the day, but or I'm sorry, the the DC ten. But I think the Max name is so publicly tainted that it has to go. And honestly, I never liked it anyway. I think they could just say the seven three seven dash eight or seven three seven dash ten, and they'll do just fine. Yeah, it was always, and I think we talked about this in a very, very early episode of the podcast about the branding around the airplane. Because it's one thing when you when you brand a consumer product to have people buy it, but the people that are buying airplanes don't they don't really care, you know, what the airplane is called. I mean, you, you could call it the you know the seven billion nine hundred dash X two three five, and whoever's buying the airplane would say, okay, what's the range? How much is it going to cost? What's the operating structure? And it was a conversation with John Ostar actually, where we talked about this was you know, the seven three seven Max. The seven eight seven was kind of the first aircraft marketed to passengers, and, and I think Boeing tried to continue that with the seven three seven Max, but in a way that I don't think they ever needed to. I mean, airlines needed to replace their older narrow bodies, and for a lot of airlines, what were they going to replace them with other than the next version of the seven three seven? Right. I think this is the end of the road at some point for the Max name. I don't think it's the end of the world. Life will go on for Boeing. I think it's almost open and shut. They have to obviously wait for all of the hearings and more so than anything else for the aircraft to be ungrounded whenever that happens. We still don't know when that's happening. But I think once that happens, uh, the Max name is no longer something that we'll be seeing much of. I, I, th- I think you're right. I think it'll be interesting to see when it starts uh, starts disappearing from paint. I think I think that'll be the well. The kind I mean, that of might take market. a while since you know Alaska still thinks they're proudly all Boeing and they're very much not at this point. That might take a while. Uh, they're getting closer back to all Boeing with you know Boeing's acquisition of Embraer. So it's they'll figure it out. Sort of, kinda. Sort of, kinda. Let's talk about a story that kind of came out of nowhere and confounded us greatly and then eventually got figured out and went away as quietly as it, it came started. out of thin air it literally do you want to explain what happened sure so I, I followed this one pretty closely pretty much from the start so let's see about probably 10 days ago or so on a random saturday night i probably eight, nine o'clock on a Saturday night, I I noticed the FAA had been issuing some delays due to GPS and ADSB anomalies, which is not something you typically see come out of nowhere. Oftentimes, there might be GPS reception issues planned due to military exercises, jamming, testing, whatever. But to have GPS issues come out of nowhere is quite uncommon and, and rare. So that Saturday night, it seemed like a lot of aircraft, specifically in North America and then specifically, again, the United States, had been randomly grounded or diverted, typically impacting regional jets, some 737-900ERs, some 717s, but there was no real rhyme or reason to it why why a CRJ-900 and also a 717 and also a 737-900ER? It just didn't really make any sense. And the the issue lasted uh, for a good day or two before it was 
really honed in on what was causing this. And it turned out that a specific GPS uh, receiver, I I think it was the whole transponder unit made by Rockwell Collins, had interpreted or received an update from the GPS satellite constellation and it didn't go well. There, there was an update to a. Um, it was the leap second. The leap second. That's it. So the, there was some routine update that happens every couple weeks and or months. And this specific model of transponder GPS receiver really didn't like that update, and it basically just outright failed. So it wasn't able to get a lock on the GPS constellation, which meant it was not able to transmit ADSB. Which, and I think we. Like, no, at this point, it's kind of important, isn't it? it yeah, it, it's it's become one of those things that is an important thing. But it it wasn't even just the 80s. It, it just the transponder just didn't want to cooperate. Right. So the transponder just it, it said, I'm done. I'm failed. And after a couple hours later into the next day, airlines fell back into contingency mode. This specifically impacted operators of the CRJ 700 and 900. So Mesa, Endeavor, the larger regional jet operators, they had to have their crews fly without RNAV, without GPS, relying on old school flying from VOR to VOR. And they had to stay under 29,000 feet out of... um, RVS airspace. Did I get that right? RVS. You did, yes. Ah, excellent. So they had to stay under that altitude, which is also problematic because some of these regional jets are not flying regionally. They're flying halfway across the country. And it really created a lot of delays, a lot of cancellations for a few days until they kind of figured out how to work around it. Um, It also impacted UPS MD-11s, which I'm told they actually had to do some GPS antenna hot swaps on that. So they actually had to do hardware changes. Thankfully, the the issue resolved itself on the next update. But this really, really showed a vulnerability in modern air traffic control where a simple glitch in an update took out a chunk of North American airspace. Yeah, I mean, it was... Once they understood the problem, it became even a little bit more maddening that it it was kind of that simple that it was a simple misinterpretation of a, of a regular update that, that caused this problem. But, but luckily it was, I don't know if quickly is the right word, but the next update was able to resolve the issue and everything's back to normal as of, uh, I think today. Yeah, it, thankfully these updates are spaced somewhat close together. It didn't seem like Rockwell Collins had an alternative plan to get these transponders functioning again, but it really goes to show how absolutely reliant modern aviation has become on GPS that without it, they have to rely on a lot of the old school navigation, which in a lot of cases doesn't exist anymore. The FAA has been decommissioning or not fixing a lot of VORs, which is the means that pilots use to to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And without that, they, there's not much recourse to fall back on. No. So hopefully they've got a, a plan in place to mitigate the, the next update. Yeah. That struck me as a very crazy chain of events since it took so long to figure out what the heck was happening. And that was, I don't think, really something anyone expected to be the cause. No, no. 
Let's turn our attention now to to Russia, where the Russian Interstate Aviation Committee, which is the investigative body there, released their preliminary report into the very hard landing of the Aeroflot Superjet and uh, subsequent fire evacuation and and that that accident and the unfortunate loss of i think 41 lives uh yes yes uh, one cabin crew member and 40 passengers were lost in the subsequent fire a- after the the hard landing and i guess we could say the not destruction of the aircraft but ensuing fire yeah, yeah. so the report came out and provided a timeline of, of what happened, and, and we learned a bit more information. Uh, and the report for the first time, th- this report for the first time confirms that the aircraft was uh, struck by lightning, or as the report terms it, an atmospheric electricity impact. Uh, a what? So, yes, exactly. An atmospheric electricity impact, which I believe we are to understand was a lightning strike. Huh. So that. Lightning strike or, or impact of electricity sent the aircraft into direct mode, which is the least automated, least computer-aided mode of flying. Right. Um, you move the side stick to the right and the plane goes to the right. It doesn't really think about it like a, an Airbus does when you move the stick to the right. It kind of confirms with the computer, is this something I should do? Rather, direct mode, it just kind of does it. Right. And and so the aircraft began a return after losing communication, but being able to reestablish communication, began a return to the airport. They were overweight. So they were dealing with that particular checklist and, and things like that. And then they came in rather quickly on the approach and also descended below the glide slope, which led to multiple touchdowns and with high G loads and the the last touchdown was was an impact of, of not less than five G's, um, and that's the impact that sheared off both main gears, which the report says had already been damaged in the first two touchdowns, and that led to the subsequent fire because the gears impacted the fuel tanks and the wings. Right. So a lot of the early speculation that was that there was something wrong with the aircraft that uh, the damage we saw in the ensuing fire was kind of the cause rather than a symptom of what happened and, and people got quite spooked about the superjet but it seems like this aircraft took it a hell of a lot of abuse on the first couple bounces and really at just some point physics takes over unfortunately um so i i don't know if the the hate and the, and the uh the i don't know the lack of confidence in the superjet is totally warranted because it sounds like this this approach and landing was was not good in any way yeah based on my reading of the report it it sounds like the the aircraft sustained quite the strike and that affected how the aircraft could be flown but it didn't affect the the fact that the aircraft could be flown <laughs> and and so then you get into to the actions uh, of the crew and how the the approach and landing were, were carried out and, and what that led to, but but this is the the preliminary report and and a final report is is due in a few months. This just contains a lot of the factual information, data from the cockpit voice recorder and the uh, the flight data recorder. So we'll we'll post a link to that in the show notes if anyone uh, wants to read through that. It's um, 
It's a, a lengthy report. It clocks in at uh, nearly 100 pages. So we'll let uh, anyone who wants to read through the whole thing go ahead and do that. The next thing is today, Dutch prosecutors announced that they're charging uh, four people over the rocket attack on MH17. Um, so this was the Malaysian Airlines flight that was overflying Ukraine five years ago now that was struck by a or uh, impacted by a missile and crashed and, and unfortunately uh, all 298 people on board were killed. International arrest warrants have been issued for four people who the Dutch authorities are saying are responsible for for the attack and three of them are Russian either former federal security service service or military personnel. And, and the fourth one is one of the Ukrainian unit leaders. So it's not clear whether they'll actually stand trial in person because there, there's nothing to that I'm aware of that would be able to get them to the Netherlands, force them to go. No rest of them made just warrants issued, but the, the trial will, will be held. Yeah, they there. probably won't be taking uh, any KLM flights through Amsterdam anytime soon. No, probably not. But it's it's very interesting to see that this this has not uh, it has not the the investigation didn't stop. No, which is which is good, and hopefully justice is, is served. But I don't think any justice can bring the the people on that plane back. No, but but hopefully that yeah, like you said, hopefully justice is uh, served in in one way or another. Over the weekend, you had a bit of an incident in your I won't call it backyard, but uh, side yard. Not even the same state, sir. Uh, yeah, close enough. Neighboring state. Neighboring state. So I made the mistake of of leaving the house for a moment. You should uh, never do that. Which I should no never better do. than that. And all of a sudden, there's a United 757 off the runway in Newark, and I would love to hear more about that. Sure. So, it was just barely ever so slightly off the runway. I think its left main gear was on the grass. But what happened? Well, we don't know why it happened. What we do know happened is that a United 757 landed uh, runway 22 left at, at Newark, at which I think it was early, not early morning, but mid-afternoon on Saturday, I feel like. Maybe Sunday, either Sunday. way. It was Sunday. Sunday. Um, and suddenly Saturday. the FAA- I apologize. It was Saturday. Saturday. Okay. And suddenly the FAA started popping up all these uh, notifications about disabled aircraft on the runway at Newark, which is not all that uncommon a notification for our three airports here. It could be anything from nose wheel failure to brake failure to whatever, but I took a look on this uh, app you may have heard of called Flight Radar 24. I, I think you've heard of it. I'm but new to it, at, but, yeah, you're, but you, I'm, I'm slowly getting the hang of it. I've heard of it, but I saw a uh, United 757-200 idling on the runway for a period much longer than you would typically expect. So I started to look into it, and lo and behold, it was uh, not your simple runway excursion. When you started seeing some of the more close-up pictures that Actually, one of my followers on Twitter was what happened to be on board and was sending me pictures after the evacuation. If you zoomed in on the nose gear, you saw that, whoa, there is significant damage to the nose section of this aircraft. That it, This was not just a uh, 
oh, our brakes weren't working properly and, and we meandered off into the grass a little bit. This was significant damage to the nose section of the aircraft to the point where a lot of people are speculating that the aircraft will be written off there at Newark and maybe chopped up. But we've seen Boeing bring uh, aircraft that we all assumed were dead back from the dead and flown again. But yeah, this, we don't know what happened. There, there's unconfirmed reports that the aircraft touchdown bounced and um, landed quite hard in the nose gear, but we, we don't have any notif- uh, any clear confirmation of that. But what we do know is that that aircraft is not looking good, is it? No, if it flies again, I will be impressed based on the, the photo that I saw, which uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. Because it the the front of the aircraft is it's crunchy, yeah, it's crunchy, and it, it's not easy to move a crunchy aircraft off the runway. And the NTSB basically said, "Don't touch it until we get there." So Newark was closed entirely for I think two hours, and they eventually ended up running on uh, a single runway configuration for the rest of the day, which can you know created your typical six hour delays, which is not great. But yeah, that was not something I expected to see because it was there was really no significant weather that day. It was pretty calm. There was no rain. There was not significant wind. It wasn't cloudy. Not really the kind of weather you expect to see an incident like that in. Yeah. So we'll, uh, the NTSB is investigating. The FAA is investigating. We'll get more. We'll get more from them when we have more from them. So let's close the show with an interesting uh, thing that happened last week now, maybe even a little more than last week. But the 737 MAX population is still moving around the world. It's um, grounded, but can still be moved. Right. They, they can't fly passenger flights. They can't sell tickets or anything like that, but they can move the aircraft to for maintenance and things like that. I mean, there are extensive maintenance checks that have to take place, even though these aircraft aren't going anywhere. There are, are various parking issues lot is moving their fleet out of Warsaw because of parking issues. Boeing is parking theirs in a variety of places. And Norwegian had one of their 737 MAX in a, I think it was a Grand Canary, and they wanted to bring it back to Stockholm, I think. And they got to the German border and the Germans said, Nein. no. <laughs> And so they they circled for a while and and put down in France. And what is interesting about this to me is is one okay that understandable if you're Germany, but if you're Norwegian, wouldn't they have said something when you filed the flight plan? Yeah, I'm not sure who this ends up being the fault of it. Is it the fault of Norwegian for thinking they could get into German airspace or for any one of the controllers or I, I don't know controllers or but the 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 centers where the flight plan would have been reviewed saying hey can't fly this year get out of here why why did it wait until they were literally at the door yeah i it, it's very unclear to me but and, and i haven't been able to find a, a solid answer anywhere so if anyone's got one send us an email podcast at fr24.com and i would love to hear hear if somebody listening knows the particular ins and outs of of this situation. So shall we say goodbye to Paris for now and goodbye to this episode and and leave it there? Good night. This has been episode 60 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechenik here as always with 
Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.